Victoria. Hi, <laughs> All right, so welcome to Black Matter Podcast. This is going to be cute. It's going to be a cute kiki. Okay. And feel free to just be you and say what you want to say. I want to welcome Miss Toria Edmonds Howell to the show. <laughs> I love it. And I want to give you um, applause because I feel like Throughout my years of living in Richmond, um, of course, you know, shout out to growth that we both have made. But I feel like I have been um, in contact with you through so many different stages of my life. Like pre-grad school, we knew each other. Through youth development spaces, we've known each other. Um, Post-grad school, we still know each other. We walked graduation together, grad school. Oh, (laughs) yeah. We both had, like, Beyonce-themed cats, I don't remember what my cap was because, you know, there's this thing about, like, when you go through PhD, it just wipes out. Memory. Yeah, it really does. Like, um, even working at the university where I got my undergrad, it's, like, a completely different experience. But shout out to you. Um, I definitely am super excited that you're coming on season, not one, season two of my show. And um, I knew when I started this podcast, I feel like it was a conversation that we had at that wine shop in Chocolate Bottom Mm -hmm. a while ago. Where I always have learned a lot from you, but I always have just, like, loved how you center, like, nuance, black cultural production, black knowledge production in a lot of your work, and black community building. Yes. And so I feel like a lot of the community stuff that I've done throughout Richmond, you have been one of the, like, native Richmonders I've definitely wanted to just, like, kiki with and learn from and talk about things with. So I feel like we've had a lot of critical kikis throughout the years. And, like, it's been beautiful to like watch you grow it's been beautiful to to watch you grow thank you girl (laughs) do you remember the first time we met so what's a coffee shop on broad lift i think oh the first time we met like professionally like not at like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like when we met up for coffee at Uh lift yeah i do remember that we were talking about um something with uh rva future centers yeah i think the future centers and i think you just wanted to find out more about them I was like really new in that space and like standing up the program but I was like oh my god he went to U of R like I would have never guessed you went to U of R oh but I never get um assumed as faculty at University mm-hmm. of Richmond hopefully it's just ageism well you don't want to like <laughs> blend into whatever like they're doing over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that is very very so true so it's good to stand out that's true I'm glad that you're on the show a few things that we're definitely going to talk about is, first of all, I'm like dying to know your opinion on the Everyday Black Matter film. So I'm going to mm-hmm. hear what you thought about it. Yeah. We're definitely going to get into some tea about uh, Bell Hooks All About Love. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, I am eating because it's my show. So these cheeses <laughs> are banging. And Toria just came over around dinner time. Um, so yes, we're going to talk about All About Love. We're going to get into um, that for sure. And the film, what you've got going on in Richmond. Mm-hmm. I want to hear more about your brand that you just launched. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just like... What is Toria and Mint Howell's Everyday Black Matter? Interpret that however you will. A big theme, I think, for this season is definitely Black Joy as Critical Practice. Mm-hmm. And um, as we talked on the previous episodes where we unpacked the film with uh, Johannes and Aurora and um, Chelsea Lamore of um, Single in the City podcast. Yes, I just listened this week. We love her. <laughs> we talk a lot about Black Joy. I always want to like be clear that the way that I interpret Black Joy is not just about like us meeting up at Louis Ginter Botanical Gardens <laughs> and frolicking in the white flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's more about, like, being able to um, just be 
Yeah. Be in a space of um, inhibition. Inhibition. Yes, that's what we want. Yes. <laughs> be in a, a space of inhibition where like we can make art, um, show up at work, and not have to feel like we need to code switch, wear yeah. our hair the way we want to wear our hair, and also like similar to you know my process of of, a, of the everyday black matter film. I made that with a lot of rage. And mm-hmm. I think being in academia, being in these kind of, you know, white elite quote unquote spaces, mm-hmm. there's this constant um, feeling that we have to, you know, put our work through a filter. And I think mm-hmm. Black Joy is saying no to that. I think Black Joy is showing up, you know, just as yourself and that being enough. Mm-hmm. And then also being able to, you know, exhibit anger and exhibit rage and not yeah. be labeled a faggot or labeled an angry black woman. Or, you know, play with your femininity as a man and not be labeled something else. So, like, for me, I think Black Joy is just about celebrating the nuance Mm -hmm. that is um, Black people. And I think we need a little sound effect there. Love it. I have a question. So, I know we're going to talk about the film. You just said that when you were in the process of creating it, you had a lot of rage. For sure. Rage did not come through Mm -hmm. to me as a viewer. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you hoping that rage would come across the screen? Mm-hmm. Well, or- I think when I say rage, I mean like rage as a part of like my authentic expression that went into the film. So like the opening monologue that was written by Vivian Barnes, mm-hmm. like the reason why I had that be the opening is because I think that so many times when these art institutions, shout out to the Valentine, <laughs> fund um, our projects, you typically have to talk about racism and have to talk yeah. about what's going on in the black community that's keeping us down. And, you, and it always comes from this place of somewhat like negativity mm-hmm. and also like convincing folks that don't look like us of our humanity. Yeah. And I think within the the trending of Black Lives Matter this year, especially because of police brutality and the way that we're treated by these systems that are designed to treat us poorly... Yeah. Um, a lot of times our art and our and our knowledge where we're centered where we are existing in these institutions a lot of times it's like we're only being funded unless we're talking about trauma and I think there is space for that mm-hmm. I, I recognize that a part of Black Lives Matter has to be to educate people about police brutality yeah. but I also think that there needs to be space for like the the black matter within yeah. Black Lives Matter meaning like the joy the 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 love the assumed humanity mm-hmm. right like not the constant um you know being stuck in this space of trying to convince people of our humanity with everyday black matter i feel like the film came from me just not seeing enough representations of like nuanced black identity so gender non-binary black folks um you know uh, this kind of experimentation with an exploration with our hair and Mm -hmm. like all of those things go into my identity and i just feel like a lot of that is suppressed um Mm -hmm. in our community and is is also typically just suppressed, you know, by black men. Um, so when I talk about rage, like, so much of the of what went into the film was me just trying to, like, really center everyday black life mm-hmm. um, as fine art and, like, not trying to fit it into, like, respectability yeah. or not trying to fit it into, like, you know, look at us, like, yeah. accept us. It was just like... Or like, let me teach you about us. Yeah, and I think we did that. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold up. Hold up. We have a star with us. I forgot that you um, were I in. I wore that bonnet. Yes. You were in Don't Touch My Hair RVA. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was in it. And I loved every 
Arby's. And with Don't Touch My Hair RBA, like, that was more educational. That was mm-hmm. more, like, understand the complexity and the resistance and the nuance of black hair expressions yeah. and leave our hair alone. There's a time and a place for that type of a film, mm-hmm. right? But I think, and I would love to hear what you thought about the differences, but I think Everyday Black Matter was more about, like, um, it was less documentary education. It was really yeah. just about pulling up on everyday black people who yeah. um, inspire me and also inspire each other because a lot of the folks in the film know each other. And just through collaboration, showing how you cannot, like, contain us mm-hmm. and, like, it's never a monolithic experience. I'm thinking about something that you said um, in the Don't Touch My Hair interview. Sorry that it didn't make it in the film. But okay. something that you said it's about... It's still archive <laughs> It is archive, <laughs> and a lot of the archive for the Don't Touch My Hair project went into making this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking about something that you said uh, in, that, in, the, in that filming of Don't Touch My Hair, RVA, about um, how folks kind of interpret you because of your hair expression. Mm-hmm. And, like, don't get it twisted. You could be pro-black and have straight hair, and, like, yeah. how you had that... You had a lot of nuanced experiences with your hair yeah. narrative. So, like, that is, like, kind of... Um, also a part of the conversations that I'm really interested in having in black communities that I feel like we just... We don't talk about. We don't talk about. And I think for us, it's necessary. I I can't tell you the number of times where I've felt like someone perceives me a certain way just because that's what I'm feeling. Mm. But you sit down and you have that conversation and you realize, like, no, that's just a feeling. It's not fact. Um, and I think it's important to, like, have those conversations in order for us to come together and, like, unite in a way that supports us all. Mm-hmm. You're right. Like, it is in the archive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm trying to do, whoever is listening and wants to help with this, um, you know, with more time and resources, I want to make the Don't Touch My Hair footage and some of the access footage from the Everyday Black Matter film like, kind of available and accessible in some kind of public domain. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Dreams would be, like, a Smithsonian Black History Museum. Realistic would be, like, maybe a local um, museum here or, Mm -hmm. like, a university that would want to pay to archive it. So that, say, five years from now when Dr. Chaz is, like, doing something completely different and, you know, a younger Chaz or Toria comes in to VCU or U of R or wherever and wants to make another film about their own black hair journey, Mm -hmm. they have access to this footage. Because we just, with Don't Touch My Hair, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. Like, period. Well, <laughs> you came across <laughs> as a pro. Yeah, but I knew I wanted to share, you know, a really co- complicated and nuanced story. And, like, you know, we we can have the conversation. Sometimes it be your own people. Like, certain criticisms that I got from Don't Touch My Hair, I was really surprised. Like, there were some criticisms about, like, why are you as a black man, like, making a film about, like, black women hair expressions? And it's like, well, because I think that we need to be careful and recognize that, like, black men can also be inspired by the beauty salon. And I felt more just, you know, I felt like it was just a more critical space for me. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole, that's another episode. But I feel like it's important to make the work um, available because some of the footage we like I didn't use, but it could still be useful for someone else. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times in these university spaces, not to get too academic, but a lot of times when we come in and we do these grant-funded black projects, mm-hmm. um, the stuff that you know is used for the grant is used, and then everything else the university has no value for. Yeah, it's discarded. It's discarded. And um, even though I, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of a film director, I knew that there was a really rich story that we were telling about Richmond. Mm-hmm. And so someone else may have access to that footage. They should be black, and they should have the same care that I had yeah. for it. And you never know. They may be able to do something totally different with it. So yeah. pending. Because so, archiving is a, is a very white space and Uh 
I've had a few conversations with v- VCU folks about archiving the material, and, like, it's just a lot of red tape and a lot of, like... What would it look like if it weren't a white space, like, ideal world? Well, you know some niggas that are specializing in archiving, because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if, if it weren't operating in the way that it does now, what would you like to see? Oh, I mean, I would like to see... There's a, there's a museum in Oakland, a library in Oakland. It's, like, a it's a black history library. I feel like because I have a computer in front of me, I should just look it up. Um, when I went to Oakland uh, by myself a few years ago, I went to the African American Museum and Library at Oakland. Mm-hmm. And it says here that it's a museum and non-circulating library dedicated to preserving African American history, experiences, and culture on 14th Street, downtown Oakland. It contains extensive archival collection and such artifacts as diaries, correspondence, photos, and periodicals. So that's kind of the, you know, the way that they describe it. But mm-hmm. that is an ideal space because it, it when I went there, it is a black-run library. It was mm-hmm. All black staff, from what I saw, and they have um, this kind of library space. Think about the Black Academic Library at Six Big, but mm-hmm. but huge and well funded. Yeah. Um, you walk in, and there's just like everything that has been written by black people there. But then there's also another section where you can go. You have to wear like, and I kind of like the the process. Like you got to wear gloves. Uh-huh. Um, they put you in like a cubicle, and there's boxes mm-hmm. and boxes and boxes, and you can go and just like find different artifacts so i would love to have the don't touch my hair footage in a black space like that where like say someone like you could take you there and they could just watch the footage like in a cubicle yeah and have have that experience and maybe there's but with this space because it's still like operating in that traditional white archival way Mm -hmm. i don't think you can like take any of it i'm interested in like what does it look like for youth to be able to take some of like say toria's interview that we Mm -hmm. didn't use and maybe make another documentary with it and Mm -hmm. maybe we would have to see what they do so that we make sure that it's like being used in like a good way or whatever i don't know what that means but i would love to make it just accessible for other black filmmakers Mm -hmm. especially me because i wasn't even a filmmaker when we made the don't touch my hair film so like I want to be able to share platforms where, like, you have that access to the tools. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that, like, even though I'm, quote-unquote, Dr. Chaz, through my own journey, I've definitely recognized that the way to freedom and the way to, like, black liberation and black joy is not getting all black kids from the hood to go to University of Richmond. At Sorry. It's just having maybe a few of us there to take the resources and funnel it into other spaces. Because as I've learned at Six Pick... And as I've learned from this equipment that we're using, like, it's not about going to sound engineer school or podcast yeah. school. It's about just having access to the, to the tools. To and these youth already know how to be sound engineers. Yeah. I always say they have all the answers, and I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so shout out to you for supporting both projects. Yes, queen! I am interested real quick, though, in, like, what did you find as far as, like, the differences, besides for budget and quality? Uh, don't touch my hair in everyday black matter. So similarities, I'll start there, that like I really appreciate it. I like seeing youth. Um, and so having youth like front and center in both films like just gave me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think differences, watching everyday black matter. I was at home alone. I'm watching and I just like... There were several moments where I wanted to turn to someone and be like, did you just see that? Or like, what did you think of that? (laughs) Wasn't that like, there were just so many moments that I think created space for dialogue. Um, 
but being in an experience with like COVID and social distancing and having the virtual film festival, like I was all alone watching it. And so I remember like, like feeling filled with joy. Um, I think a lot of that I can attribute to just seeing youth on screen, like Jonah and knowing Anjali. Yeah. And I was just like, I love this. Yes. I love this a lot. The ending in the parking lot across from like Sadia's um, juice bar. There was um, a lot of intentionality about like centering Jackson Ward. Yeah. And that was for my own kind of selfish joy because during COVID, you know, we're contained, a lot of us are contained to our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of walks um, during this pandemic. And a lot of the walks that I did helped me think about the value and like using my neighborhood as part of like the scene mm -hmm. and setting the setting. tone for the film. Because now when I walk past like that parking lot, the field where Jamar and I dance, mm -hmm. even U of R, I have these new joyful memories there. Yeah. And I think other folks that live in this neighborhood do as well from seeing the film and seeing that it wasn't about creating like the spectacular, like we need to go here, we need to go there. Yeah. It was about like using place everyday, making. yeah, placemaking, everyday black places that may change substantially. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to kind of like, you know, archive them in a way through my own work of yeah. saying like these neighborhoods are like rich with cultural production and like mm -hmm. also to give youth and folks who are watching like the message that like your neighborhood is enough like yeah. you can make dope art that is classified as fine art yeah, as nuanced art right in your backyard um so that was like really intentional to, to, to do that yeah the i i had a great time making the film i think it's the first body of work i've made where like if not another nigga sees it i'm happy with it uh -huh. and i like watching it and like mm -hmm. putting in the voicemails for my grandma like it was just it was a fun process yeah. um and it's definitely like something i want to keep doing and i love like just how welcoming folks like you have been to like people like me that and making home in richmond yeah. um in terms of like place making i love talking about black placemaking it really helped me just think about like the nuancedness of home mm -hmm. so it was dope well i i don't i'm not a like big film person in general mm -hmm. like you'd be like, africana deep though yeah so i like short films oh, okay. i like films that feel familiar mm -hmm. um i like supporting my friends obviously yes. um but i feel like with your film like I still go back and like there are messages that came through that are still like playing in my head um and I don't know what Africana was a month ago a month ago um but I think that like just speaks to like the quality of what you produce Yay. because there are things you can watch and you can enjoy in them enjoy them in the moment but then like time goes on you forget about it mm -hmm. but I feel like your art for me at least has like left it imprint yes. like there are things that like i still ve very vividly remember from don't touch my hair like i don't know what that art building is. i think it's an art building vcu's campus um where we art depot yeah where we it used did to be a train filming. station and just like the moment of waiting and like getting ready and interacting with like the other women in the room like that felt good. Yeah. Like women I didn't know, um, you know, thinking about what's the quote. You talking about this Don't one? do anything for them unless they overpay yeah. you. I love that you brought that up because I, I think what makes me like geek out is just hearing people's different, black people, mm -hmm. white folks, it's not for y'all, hearing <laughs> black people's um, 
different interpretations and opinions of that quote because one of the points that you're like making that is really important to this film for me is um I think don't touch my hair I was kind of like trying to tell a story and trying to like educate folks on a particular story and I think with everyday black matter because it came from like rage and nuance and my non-binaryness and like me just wanting to to just be Mm -hmm. right and also just seeing how amazing black people how we are when we just are able to just be Mm -hmm. that was really giving people space to have their own conversations their own dialogue Mm -hmm. with it and so I created the I wrote the quote don't do anything for them unless they overpay you from reading a book um, called listening to images by Tina camp Mm -hmm. and just like what that book made me think about and then also like finishing grad school in 2020 and like having to operate in this space of like now all of a sudden these institutions as we were talking earlier when you first got here um, these institutions that saw me as invisible all of a sudden like really want us really think that we're they want to bring us in and they want to pay us honorariums to come now talk about black joys like but when I was talking about black joy in 2019 y'all wanted me to use don't touch my hair to talk about like oh my god we're being so discriminated against it's like but there are also black women who just fucking love their hair yeah do to Toria or how did the quote how does the quote connect to Toria's everyday black matter so it connects it's I'll start by saying it's a quote that I don't want to forget come on now um you make me feel like I'm Solange or something (laughs) you can be Solange almost two years ago I switched from working in the public sector to the private sector and Mm. I so a few white people to all white people yeah for sure (laughs) um And I just remember as I was considering making that transition, like going through this period of like feeling some level of guilt of like, Mm. oh, I can't leave like, you know, working for the city or the school system because like they need me Mm. or like what's going to happen if I'm not there Um, or, you know, they've depended on me for, you know, fill in the blank, like the bottom's going to fall out and maybe that's an egotistical thing to say, but I just felt kind of this sense of like necessity of like to stay being there, staying, you know, I had a lot of but like, what about your anxiety dreams? about like, what's going to happen to the youth? Mm-hmm. Like I've been, you know, prominent in this space for quite some time. Like, moving into the private sector are people going to think that I'm like leaving my purpose and calling behind and these are all things I've wrestled with prior to making that transition I went to the getaway house you know those little teeny houses in the woods they have like different outposts throughout the country there's one right outside of Charlottesville they're a good company because we ain't doing no free promo well, we you can to... cut out their name. I don't. I haven't done enough research <laughs> to know if they're. Are they black company. owned? No, they're not. Oh wait. <laughs> don't do. <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you. They're pretty much like teeny houses. I'm like in this teeny cabin. There is no like Wi-Fi. There's no television. There's no mirrors. I'm just there with like my books, my journal. No mirrors. Nothing. So. But like, you could put a look together. So what did you? I mean, so I went with the intention of, like, sitting with myself wow. and just being. Wow. 
and trying to find answers to the question of like what's next for Toria. Mm. Um, you know, I was running a citywide youth development program. Um, you know, had been in that space for a while, but internally knew that it was like time for something else for me. Mm. Um, I kept telling people like, I want to be stretched. I want to like really lean into pieces and parts of me that I know are there, but yes. I just not had the space to really flex them. Um, and this so, is a lot of internal, like leading to self-love as we're going to yeah, talk about soon. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sitting in the space. I have finally decided like, okay, like step out of your comfort zone, do this thing and I remember maybe like a month later, I I used to never take time off from work. I was that person who was like, they're not going to be okay if I'm not there. Mm. Um, and by they, more so my youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember like a couple of my close friends, they were going to do a spa day at um, Spa World in like Centralville. I love Spa and World. I hadn't been before, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to take a great the experience. day. Yes. And to bring a good book and just zone exactly. out in a bath. Exactly. More black people need to go to Spa World. Yes, go to Spa World. I love it. They're not black owned, but I, I but you know, go there. <laughs> now, they don't really be that nice to us, but that don't mean we can't be nice to them. <laughs> Making a profit off of us. Period. So that's a, that's another podcast. That I would love to get into that. But episode. You're right. Yeah. So we're at Spa World, and as we like, we pull up in the parking lot. We're about to go in, have a full day of just like relaxation, and I get a call from the company I had been interviewing with, mm-hmm. and they were making me an offer. And when they told me the salary, it damn near doubled what I was making with the city. And I'm thinking like, I get to do work that interests me. And like that I want to do, but there was this sense of guilt of like, they're going to pay me this much to do that. And Mm. I like, I didn't know how to like sit with that. Like I struggled with that. Like this girl, I would have ran. So like, obviously I'm in that role now and I'm doing that work, but I don't know. I think for me, like when I think back to that quote, I think for some of us, for me, mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like maybe I just like undervalue myself, but it's almost this sense of like, you have to like sacrifice and like, you have to live with this mindset that like, oh, I'll do it because it's important work or it's work that needs to be done. And, you know, I'm going to do it for whatever you offer me. And that's kind of what I felt like this sense of like guilt around like I, I can't do this like I don't know it's like hard I can't to do explain. this I can't do this good work and get paid what I exactly. like get paid a lot for it exactly um, no I hear what you're saying I mean I think that sounds like you're conditioned in terms of sometimes when we start doing the really great work and I I don't want to overstep but I also feel like sometimes black women are conditioned to do the work that needs to be done yeah and, and it's not about not think about the compensation mm-hmm. or the reward because you said whatever. earlier like I didn't take time off because it was like you didn't have trust that yeah. things could keep going on without you yeah and like I work with many of black women who like if they did take time off I would be in the back like girl I don't know if it's going to run around you shout out to Jackie at six pick <laughs> but I had a dream about uh two months ago that i i I talked to my friend uh mecca about Mm -hmm. 
because we've been going on these walks and just having really complicated and nuanced and beautiful conversations about just stuff that we're processing. And I tend to have um, a lot more trust in my uh, friendships with women, Mm -hmm. Um, especially my friendships with black women. Around men, my male friends, I feel like I'm typically the one that's like, let's try this new thing. And with my women friendships... It's I yeah, there. it's like let's it's like bitch, we're all growing over here. Yeah. Let's keep growing. Yeah. So there's definitely an imbalance, and it's not to shade my male friends. I just think that women, um, people who are socialized as women, are just more in touch with like their internal, their their emotional yeah. side, their gender fluidity. So I just have a lot more growth experiences mm-hmm. with the women in my life. I'm connecting to what you said about like as a black woman, you feeling like if you didn't take the time off or you didn't take the break things wouldn't get done because I definitely feel like there are so many relationship things that I've gotten through that I would have only gotten through it because I had like a black woman friend. Shout out to black women. Yes. That's for black women. Love y'all. That's why my grandma and my auntie Sharon made an appearance in the film because wherever I am in my life, the thing that has kept me grounded and kept me humble and kept me sane okay. is being able to, for no matter where I am in the world, call my grandmother every other night and just be like grandma. We don't get to, like, really hold space for, like, how critical, like, black women are in our lives. It's very critical, even to the point, like, in my career, like, that's something important to me. Like, am I going to be managed by a black woman or do I have black women who will be on a team with me? Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily, in the transition into, like, the space that I'm in now, um, my manager, the director of the space, um, is a black woman. And, like... I honestly feel like I would not have survived my initial transition into that world had mm. she not been there. Mm. Had she not been a person like helping me to understand the lay of the land, but also very much encouraging me to be my authentic self and constantly reminding me of how that self is important to that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I know one of the things we were discussing a little earlier was like, you know, dealing with white people at work and like all the things that come along with that. And um, I think I've often looked to spaces where I have that black woman friend that creates that buffer or like Mm -hmm. that sense of safety amongst whatever else is going on and so like thinking back to the point you were just making like even as a black woman like I find myself relying on other black women quite a bit Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and it's not um it's not to downplay like I love I mean I love men of course but I do think that there just needs to be more conversations about um holding space to hold black men in particular cis black men accountable for the ways that we often just like you know think that things just magically get done yeah um my (laughs) my hairdresser told me this really fascinating i mean it's and the thing is like here i am like as a nigga be like it's really fascinating but i'm probably gonna tell you story and be like no it's not like i my hairdresser and her um partner her 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 boo um they have a great relationship like i just Mm -hmm. whenever i go get my hair done i just like love seeing them because they just they seem like they're friends and they also just like kiki and they giggle and they also are very like lovey Mm -hmm. and i asked her i was like what is the secret to just like you and um paul like having a great relationship they're both Mm -hmm. black and she said she was like our relationship got very 
real and beautiful when he started to realize that I'm not competing with him. It's just that there are literally things that I see that he doesn't see. And the example that she gave was she said that when they started to, um, when they had a baby and they started to exchange roles, like Mm -hmm. basically they switched from um, he does the dishes at night and Mm -hmm. she gets the baby ready for the next day. Mm -hmm. And she said that that was going fine and weeks went by and she saw that like there was mold building up like around the oven Mm -hmm. and on the counters and stuff. And she just thought to ask him, she was like, when you do the dishes, what do you do? He was like, I do the dishes. And she was like, no, nigga, like, when you do the dishes, that means, like, you... You, you wipe the countertops, like, you make sure everything is... Yeah, like, and she said that, like, there are several examples like that where, like, when he says to her to do the dishes, she knows that that means you clean mm-hmm. the whole kitchen. Yeah. When she says to him do the dishes, this nigga's just I doing... Just the dishes. <laughs> and she said that when, he, when she started to make those things visible to him, that mm-hmm. there are just things that you are not socialized to see, and yeah. so you have to trust that I'm not trying to... Nag. nag or compete with you it's yeah. I'm trying to say like if you really want to share the labor yeah. you have to just trust me sometimes that like no I also need you to do this thing mm-hmm. and when she like laid that out I was like that is that's how I feel with a lot of um male relationships that I've been in mm-hmm. I often feel like I am the one that like sees other things that they just don't see or I'm the one that initiates the conversations that are hard or the one that the conversations that have to do with like us talking about emotion like for me what really like turns me on is like yes good physical chemistry and good sex but I like to have really long great dialogue with you and if we're not like friends and we can't kiki in the way that you and I are kikiing on this episode Mm -hmm. I don't really want to share my body with you but I spent years like putting that part to the side Mm -hmm. because with especially in gay male culture like gay men are more we're more into like let's fuck and then build everything else up Mm -hmm. and like for me it's like I don't know why that, well, I can talk about that, but the reason why that was, I think this year in particular that I've just become so like over that is because I have seen the other side and the other side is my friendships with black women. (laughs) And so it's like, it's not that I'm trying to create this utopian thing with men that I've never experienced before. When I like, if I really just took out the, a photo album of all the women and non-binary friends that I have in my Mm -hmm. life. We have the, the hard emotional conversations. Mecca and I have nuanced, complicated conversations yeah. where we can get into an argument and I don't feel like because we had a disagreement, the friendship is over. It's yeah. like we do the work to repair it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as men, we're not socialized to be, as Bell Hooks talks about, we're not socialized to be in you know relationships where you're really looking at a friend or a partner as like a family kind of connection. Yeah, where like, someone who has your best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's firm. Yeah. We're going to talk about all about love. Okay. I mean, that's like one of the reasons why, I mean, this is the, this is like what we're dedicating your episode to, but I'm excited to unpack some of this book with you. Yes, and I think we faded right into it really well, so this is going to be some cutie. You want to tell me the stuff that you want to bring up, or you just want to bring up? Um, so I love how, like, early in the text, like, she starts off, we learn about love and childhood, and just talks about, like, you know, how we are conditioned to receive or to be fearful of love um, based on how we're reared. Mm-hmm. Um 
And I think it will tie to like why youth joy, especially youth enrichment, is so important to me um, because I think we teach young people how to be loved or how to receive love in ways we don't necessarily realize we do, even in like a youth programming setting. Mm, Okay, unpack that. I'm really excited to talk to you about All About Love by Bell Hooks because we've been kicking on and off about this book for a while. And um, it is a very important text um, to me. And I feel like a lot of my development and and the ways that I think about love uh, and joy as a critical practice, I always circle back to Dr. Auntie Bell Hooks. Um, (laughs) She has a lot of books that I obviously, like, you know, have devoured in my academic work, but also like it's it's beautiful when you find work that fuels you like career wise, but also fuels you like personal because I think the personal is political, and I think it is only white people who think that like you can work as an objective person. Like yeah. we're bringing our full body, our full black self to work, and I feel like That's Bell Hooks true. really helps us like remember that um, black life is also you know critical and knowledge producing, and so just the way that she centers you know, everyday stuff uh, and thinks about love as an intellectual thing. So um, I know through the book, um, being the Gemini that I am, I want to definitely talk about a lot of what it has done in terms of Mm -hmm. self-love. I definitely think, you know, especially amongst men, like we just don't talk about self-love enough. And I think especially in in black communities too, like self-love is this thing like, well, girl, my kids go to college or when I, you know, when the perfect time comes, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, and so um, I'm ready to get into it. And so what are the things um, that you really take away from this book? And I, I have my journal here, and I'll share some stuff as well. But I love this book, yeah, and I think, like, good. it's just it's something that every couple um, or every person who is really, you know, committed to the work, to yeah. the work of self, um, and really thinking about how it's important to bring your full self to space yeah. to the spaces that you're a part of and not think about, oh, I'm, I run this youth organization, but I'm just here to make sure the youth have a good experience. I'm, yeah. I'm objective. Like, no, I think Bell Hooks would say otherwise. So I love the book. I'm love, I'm excited to talk about it with you. Me as well. I bet like you, you definitely want to like dive into the concept of self love. Mm-hmm. And, um, there is a quote from the text that says, do not expect to receive the love from someone else that you do not give yourself. And that's mm. that's like the crux of self-love. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I think about quite a bit um, in understanding that like self-love is an active process. Like you don't do it in like check the box you've achieved you're done Mm -hmm. it's like something that you have to work at constantly day in and day out um so it's work it's work (laughs) it's work um and I think in reading this text it continued to help me understand um that very fact that it is truly work like look right here in the mark work (laughs) I have it written in my annotations um but yeah, like doing that work is not necessarily easy. And it's not um, something that we grow up um, conditioned is important. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people can can categorize self-love as being like narcissistic. Yeah. And it's like, no, I don't think that you can be in a loving relationship unless you have a loving relationship with yourself. Yeah. And she even says that the chapter of self-love is the hardest one for her to write mm-hmm. in the book. And I feel like 
doing self-love simultaneously with living alone has been really important for me in terms of like at first I definitely have experienced a lot of like loneliness um Mm -hmm. in terms of living alone and also just like you know not being in a relationship when I thought I should be in a relationship and how like that contributes to loneliness but then also like really leaning into the joy that you can create when you live alone and you're able to really get to know yourself yeah and understand yourself and like also like create like boundaries Mm -hmm. um I feel like if if anything good has come from this 2020 you know corona all the bullshit that has been 2020 Mm -hmm. is that now that we're just starting to go to events and stuff I feel way more actualized and way more secure being like, oh, like, even though I'm this social butterfly, Miss Chaz, I want to go to events and stuff. I feel way more secure being like, I'm ready to go home. Like, I've had enough. I don't need to feel, like, obligated to just be this social being all the time. And living alone has taught me that, like, you can have great experiences by yourself. And it's not always about, like you know on a friday night feeling guilty that you're not out but also like maybe your body's just not calling for that yeah and so i've like pretty much lived alone all of my adult life with the exception of times where i like fell in love and thought okay we're gonna move in with you lived with a man before yeah (laughs) that's the right sound because girl i cannot Thank you to all my exes for opening my mind about, I always want to have my own space. Yes. I think even if you live alone, I would like to always have the means for us to at least have our own rooms. Yeah. And we sleep together, of course, but like, I want to, I still want a room in the house that is mine. Yes. I think that's important. The book really teaches us that. I just have realized that a non-negotiable for me is that I always want some type of physical space that is mine. Mm -hmm. Working. I'm not into this like open workspace. No. I want to be able to keep my office the way that I... Close the door. Close the door. Period. (laughs) And you knock before you enter. Yeah, and I think I was conditioned to think that that was not what I wanted because I am Gemini, I'm big personality, I'm very social, but I also need to recharge. And I think the book really helps you realize that, like, the self-love, as you said, like, it's work. Um, Especially because we're not conditioned to think that that's a part of our, you know, definition of, like, success and Mm -hmm. family and... Yada, yada, yada. Because I think in so many ways, like, we don't necessarily have external examples of how you measure it. And Mm -hmm. everything in society is about, like, evaluation and measurement. Mm -hmm. And, like, can you see that you've done the thing? So can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you assess, like, yourself on your journey to self-love? Like... Okay, let me ask the question in another way. Go ahead, go deep. On a scale of 1 to 10, <laughs> 10 being a lot, mm. where are you? In self-love? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm like an 8.5. That's good. <laughs> I, no, I mean, like, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but, like, I am my own best friend. I love you. And I say that not to be, like, you know, braggy or whatever, but, like, I do really love myself. Yeah. I, I I have had joyful experiences by myself. Yeah. It has come a long way, and I think um, when that started is I had a breakup a few years ago that mm-hmm. put me into, like, a serious depression. Just being surrounded by friends who only typically see that side of you as, mm-hmm. like, you're the party starter, you're the energetic one, you're the yeah. funny one. That when I was really in a low point, like, I used to set alarms at work and go into the bathroom and just cry. Right. Because I didn't feel that I could do it, like, in the spaces that I was in. Mm-hmm. And I think when I saw myself that low, because I am typically, like, such a bubbly person, 
I knew that like I had a lot more work to do than mm-hmm. I had thought prior to the relationship. Yeah. And I had never experienced depression like that. And it lasted for a really long time mm-hmm. to the point where the typical things that I would usually do to get myself out of it, I, they weren't working. working. And so now, um, you know, several, like maybe two, he's like two relationships ago. Yeah. Um, I definitely have learned that like I have a core love for myself that I didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, at that time because I just don't like, and you know, any man that's thinking about approaching me, like, please still do. <laughs> but I just don't value um, having a boyfriend anymore. Yeah. I value having a partner. partner. And it's yeah. very, very different. Meaning, like, I'm way more secure about my non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. I'm way more Boundaries. secure about the fact that, like, you know, all of the things that I have kind of manifested, my puppy, my graduate school experience, etc., I've been able to achieve them without a relationship. Yeah. And I have learned through How therapy that, like, the only time that I really have a bad relationship with myself is when I was in a relationship. So I'm trying to really think about, you know, bringing men into my life in terms of intimacy and mm-hmm. relationships where like, yes, the partner and the romance stuff is great, but we're also on a track of like growth yeah. and I want to help you love yourself better and I want you to help me love myself better. And yeah. I think by doing that individual thing, we will show up better for each other. That's why I say it's an 8.5 because I do feel like in therapy, I've done a lot of work about like, I feel like I'm this happy person Mm -hmm. and I really do enjoy being by myself. I know that I don't want to sacrifice the work that I've done from that depressive state to now Mm -hmm. just because like, oh, Tori, I bet he loved me. Mm -mm. So, 8.5 girl. Come on. 8.5. I think, like, I I don't think that I've struggled with loving myself and doing that work. Um, I think, to your point earlier, the times where, like, as I reflect where I can pinpoint that, like, I wasn't loving myself in the ways that I know how, Mm -hmm. that was because, like, for me, it was like, okay, you're getting older. You have to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So even if something didn't feel fully aligned with who I am, my full authentic self. You were saying in it. I was, you know, like, flexing and, like, bending to make a relationship work because I felt like Mm -hmm. I needed to be in a relationship because Tori wants kids and Tori wants Mm -hmm. to get married and all of those things. And I I know 100% I'm in a space now where, like, I do not have, like willingness to walk back on my non-negotiables or you know let down the boundaries that I've established that I know are necessary for myself to continue to be able to love myself fully um and that's hard because you know up until recently I was in a space where it's like there's no one who's going to fit into like Mm. my world Mm, mm. in the way that I want to love myself because Mm. As you read in the text, like patriarchy and like oh, I know the ways in which men are conditioned, Just conditioned to be, yep. it it makes it really hard to show up as a loving self, mm. um, in you know extend love to that other person as a partner when like 
it comes with all the bullshit. And, and so, I think that date, I think that a lot of men, just from my dating experience, um, are conditioned to think that doing this kind of work is automatically like conflict. Yeah. Automatically, like we are in a fight because I'm telling you that, like, no, you stepped on my toe. I still love you. I yeah. still want to be with you, but you stepped on my toe, and I just need you to apologize for that, or I need us to address that. And I feel like that's why when I look at the ratio of my friends, I'm I feel. I have far more trust in the foreverness mm-hmm. compatibility with my female friendships yeah. than male friendships. And I hate to be so binary, but I mean, it is what it is in some, yeah. some cases because I feel completely comfortable going to the women in my life and saying like, there's a conflict or this kind of hurt my feelings or this yeah. rubbed me the wrong way. Could we, could we work through it? Could we talk about it? Could we go on a walk, etc.? And I, don't always feel like that with men because I feel like it typically will lead to like now that I pointed out a problem our friendship you think that like the friendship is 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 over and that like you know I just think we men gotta get better at um embracing the fact that love doesn't always feel good and that sometimes Mm -hmm. love is as the hooks teaches like is very challenging Mm -hmm. um and I hate to compare men to to dogs but I'm reading the Caesar (laughs) books on dogs right now and he talks about calm assertive and like there's a lot of connection because he talks about like you don't have love without consistency and like Mm -hmm. at the at the end of the day a dog thrives on consistency Mm -hmm. and they mirror your bad qualities and so if you're getting a dog to supplement the fact that it's just not working with human relationships the dog is not going to fill that gap yeah and like I'm not, they're, they're very different, but I'm just saying <laughs> that. Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I didn't say it, you did. You know, instructing, like, these are the non-negotiables. Yeah. Run away when things get really difficult. When you assert yeah. your boundaries, when you assert your non-negotiables. Um, you know, I have had experiences where I feel like the relationship, I always feel like I'm doing way more emotional work in the relationship only because I embrace, like, that a part of us loving each other has to be to have like uncomfortable conversations yeah. and we have to do emotional work. And another thing that I think this book talks about too is like, I feel like a lot of men get into, and I hate to just be like men, 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 but <laughs> men, men, men. <laughs> I feel like a lot of times um, I've been in, in relationships and friendships with men where suddenly um, his problem becomes our problem because mm-hmm. the work that is his work it's always easier to share it to share it and i think when you go to therapy and you look and you're like wait a minute you had this trauma or you had this issue before we came into even before me so you have to work on that on your own now i'm not saying that you need to be in isolation or solitary or that i can't support you on that but i can't do that work for you and i feel like um i'm going through that with a certain friend right now and i just feel like it's it's crazy because it's like i I find that a lot of men do not take responsibility for the work that is theirs. And then it's, and then me being on the other side, like me being friends with straight women who mm-hmm. vent to me about their male relationships, it's always like, oh, we're working on this, we're working on that. And I'm like, girl. That's his to work on. Yeah. And so Bell Hooks is, is, she's hitting the word, you know. Dropping all the gems. Yes. Johannes, on the beats, my G. Patriarchy is real, and we are conditioned, and I think that 
in order to be healthy, there has to be a lot of unlearning to do. But she also talks about the concept of just like working with love and working with care. And I feel like when you make that transition to realize that like, I'm not just working this job because it equates to success, but like really bringing love to work, um, which I feel like I'm starting to really be on that journey. Um, it helps just in coping with the bullshit that we have to deal with yeah. with these institutions. However you want to recuperate it. By any it, means necessary. By any means necessary. And I think a lot of that has to do with being self-loving. Like, once you reach that point, like... The institution can't define you. At all. Come at on. all. So, yay to 8.5. And growing. <laughs> and growing. Very hard work. Be proud. And I, um, I've had struggles. Like, in 2020, um, I feel like... It's not just the way that I show up in institutions. There are several strikes against me: black, gay, um, non—you know—masculine prese presenting, younger ageism is presenting. But also, like my struggles with ADHD, I work very differently and process information very differently than like some of my my colleagues. And um, I have created several, um, you know, ways of dealing with that, ways of focusing and changing up my space. But I feel like I've learned in 2020 because, you know, we're all in transitions and like yeah. all the shit that I created to, to be productive with ADHD got thrown out the window mm -hmm. when this happened because we've been confined to working from home and all that stuff. And like yeah. that just has been a, a struggle for me. But this process has really taught me that like so much of academia, it's all about theory. In theory, we support people with intellectual disabilities. Yeah. In theory, we support black folks. In theory, we want to hold space for black women, mm -hmm. scholars. But in practice, nobody knows how the fuck to work with people who have different um, yeah. intellectual uh, challenges and I've learned that like my ADHD is not something that necessarily is a struggle I just do work differently yeah. than the other girl and I'm tired of feeling like I have to like yell to folks like no no, no this is what I have and mm -hmm. this is why I'm not able to do this thing or this is why I process something a little bit slower mm -hmm. because I feel like in these educational spaces all we do is talk about how we're inclusive and we want to hold space for yeah. this type of student but then when you really show up and you say oh um can you, you know, slow down that PowerPoint slide or whatever? Yeah. People don't want to actually change the ways that things have constantly worked true. for the most amount of people. That's not just academia. I mean, I, <laughs> come on. Like, folks know in, in my workplace, I process a lot different than others. Mm -hmm. Like, I need time to sit with new information. Mm -hmm. um, I need context. Mm -hmm. And I'm very vocal about that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, similarly, people will say, like, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Like, oh, you belong. Mm -hmm. Show up as your full self. But when you're sitting on a Zoom meeting and, you know, folks are just, like, talking around you and you need that There's moment no to pause to really, like, to absorb what's being said and then to respond like it's one of my biggest pet peeves like toria do you have anything to add well yeah i will have something to add when you give me a chance to like process what's been put on the table mm -hmm. there's just a lot of productivity yeah. obsession that comes when you're not working with care and when you're yeah. not working with love yeah um and i do think that for folks listening like this book is a great book to read if you're just yearning for a collective like slow down it made me feel like oh i'm not crazy I am just operating in this space where I'm constantly trying to unlearn patriarchy and unlearn the ways that institutions have conditioned my like value in self yeah. and really think more through a lens of black joy about um, what are my dreams and what are my goals, my career goals that don't involve um, institutions. institutions. What are yours? Like, 
how is the work that you're doing in your everyday life really helping you get to a space where you are moving towards that 10 yeah. and you are moving towards like a type of I value myself as successful not because of what I'm doing for this organization but because of what I'm doing for me yeah so I if I look at my past body of work and even like my current work the common thread is I've always been put in positions to build something in like white space and not like literally like amongst white people but just like blank canvas to <laughs> launch a citywide um college access program build mm -hmm. it or we want to develop you know a citywide um youth development program for 18 to 24 year olds develop it or we just built this multi-million dollar innovation center and we want programming to help nonprofits build capacity mm -hmm. and small businesses to thrive, build it. Mm -hmm. And what I have realized is that there's been some sense of security and safety and like pushing into an institution and building something for them. And part of like my own journey towards self-love is like realizing that like I am safe to build something on my own exactly how I want to build it mm -hmm, that um, part. Mm -hmm. and as I think about my current work like I work for an innovation center really focused on like Richmond's startup ecosystem as well as like nonprofits being seen as like small businesses within themselves and thinking about how to use that institution's resources to like build capacity um, for those organizations and it's work that I value and I love, but, you know, adjacent to that, this year I told myself, like, you're going to build something from scratch just for Toria that's 100% mm -hmm. your own. So Come on with your smooth transition. <laughs> <laughs> My latest venture, um, North 24th Home, is... Um, a small business that I started just a few months ago. Congrats on launching your own business. Thank you. Give Black Women their flowers, honey. Yes. Um, non-toxic, small batch. Um, non-toxic so men can't work for you? <laughs> that too. Um, non-toxic, small batch cleaning <laughs> products. Um, really focused on joy yes. one of the core values of my business um north 24th is the street in richmond that i grew up on it's yes. where my parents still live and it's also the street that i live on as an adult so my parents are on one end of north 24th i'm on the other end as i was thinking about you know this business i really wanted something that allowed me an outlet to be creative mm -hmm. allowed me space to tell my family story in some way mm -hmm. like I knew I wasn't going to write a book or you know anything because that's just not you know for me mm -hmm. or at least not in this moment but I wanted to somehow tell my family story and then I just thought about the things that I do as a part of like my own self-care self-love journey and that part of that is like being very conscious about what I put in my body what I put on my body what's in my home and so it's a full line of home cleaning products. It comes with a QR code that links to a playlist um, because as I think about joy 
and my black family, a very vivid memory of mine is those Saturday mornings waking up with my family, turning on the Luther or the Anita Come and on. cleaning the house. And so like I wanted to evoke those memories yeah. and you know, we're all at home right now. Yeah. Cleaning is like at the front of most of our <laughs> mind. And so, you know, it's my way of bringing that joy element back into um, the home to care for self, to care for one another, to care for home, mm -hmm. like metaphorically, not just the brick and mortar physical space yes. is something that I, I definitely want to be an advocate and proponent of. And so, yeah, that's North 24th home. Yeah. You're able to hold space for, as you said, like the joy that comes from the metaphorical space of black homes. Yeah. And now like working in spaces like U of R and these institutions, it's like, I know where I get my worth and my value and my joy from. Mm -hmm. So I can show up to this place and see the fuck shit that they're doing. Yeah, mm. and it not even phase me. No, because mm -mm. I'm going home and wash my hair. Exactly. I love the work that you're doing. And I also love um, in your story what I caught too is that you spent a lot of time building things for other institutions and I think it's so beautiful and important that you recognize like, wait a minute, I can build something for myself. Yeah, and it's affirming when you do it and like the shit works out. Without like the safety net that an institution might provide, like, can I really do this? And yeah. like in my gut, I felt like I could, but to really step out there, do it and like stand back and be like, oh, I did that. Mm -hmm. Like it's a great mm -hmm. affirming feeling that continues to just like catapult me to the next thing. Cause mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. well, what am I gonna build next? Like that was baby step. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll continue to feed that and grow it. But it's like, I have a running list of other things oh, I wanna yeah, build. Oh yeah, seriously. Um, so, what, yeah. so what are what are Toria's kind of like black joy dreams like what's on the list on the list family is important to me I definitely um, desire to have children um, in the future um, and being on this kind of like you know the, the boss level that you are on congrats to that I think it's important to give you your flowers Thank you. do you feel um, that there's that you still are battling that conditioning of like kind of planning your exit while you're in um i um i'm speaking about like i i know that sometimes i think women in the workplace unlike men will kind of plan like yeah well i'm going to get this promotion because i may have this baby in five years or i need to get this promotion because i'm going to do this for my family in this year like or are you just totally going at it like non-linear? Non-linear. I, I love that because I'm really trying to, I want kids and I want, um, you know, partnership. And I, I'm, I told you like in 2020 and have just seen institutions and how they're showing their ass right now. Yeah. <laughs> I just know that like the dream is not just to have this linear, yeah, normal track all. career in academia. So I'm really, even though I have these goals of like buying a house and all those things require resources, I'm also, like, trying to not think about my experience in the academy as, like, this linear thing, like, produce, get tenure. Yeah. I'm thinking more, like, I just want to enjoy the journey for and the next couple be. years. The kid that goes to college and that does all the I'm things. I'm the oldest. I'm definitely, like, an achiever. Like, if you There's look so at much any linear, of those yes. assessments about personality type, like, I'm an achiever. I'm very much, like, a person who has to plan who has to, like, feel a sense of productivity. But I think I I think I finally got to that space where, like, I realized there's no end to that. Like, it's constant. Like, it's there's always the what's next. What, <laughs> what are we doing next? And I was like, this isn't what I want. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. and I think part of it, and 
I don't even like admitting it, but I will. Um, like I have two younger sisters. Um, one just turned 30. The other um, is 25. And no, you're good. Your sister said, don't talk about me. <laughs> I know that was their spirits. <laughs> there really was. Two younger sisters, 30 and 25, and they both have children. Oh. My older siblings both have children. I know exactly where you're and, going. And, you know, for me, I had always been like the achiever. Mm. Like, I went to school and I did all the things, and I almost felt like there was this kind of expectation that I would continue to be that person. You just keep climbing. Um, yeah, continue to climb. And seeing my sisters, like, be mothers and, like, the joy that that brings to their lives, I, like, know I'm capable. And I had to divorce myself from believing that I had to, like, go on to achieve the next thing yeah. within whatever, like, I tell myself I need to do or society tells me I need to do and be like, I'm just going to be. And yeah. what happens, happens. Mm -hmm. And if that means, like, next year, Tori is walking around in cute maternity clothes because she's about to have a baby, like, that's cute. fine. Cute. Whereas maybe two years ago, I would have been pulling out that strategic plan no. for my life and saying, no, this can't happen yet. Mm -hmm. I feel like 2020 threw all that in the trash yeah. for me and I really realized that I really just like I love education mm -hmm. I love geeking out over like great books and I love finding things that help me find myself right mm -hmm. and so like I love reading things like all about love and then in letting that inform the way that I write my dissertation etc yeah. and so for me it's really just about having access to resources to share important things around education and to create you know podcast from nothing like yeah. i i i love um when we as black folks lean into our dreams in these non-linear ways because i think that so many times we are just not conditioned to appreciate the journey it's about yeah. hitting the benchmarks mm -hmm. checking, off the, checking off the boxes and like you know to, to go back to all about love like one of the questions i wrote about um self-love and she talks about self-love being inclusive of trust commitment care respect knowledge and responsibility and really leaning into the responsibility as a part of our self-love journey mm -hmm. um, can lead to too much hustle because I feel like yeah. in um, the way that I'm conditioned, sometimes there's just so much of us um, equating our self-worth to hustle. Like I got this job, I got the business, yeah. I'm doing all these things. And it's like having conversations, the hardest conversations I can have with my black friends mm -hmm. are about rest and about, yeah, are about rest. And I have, you know, I'm mm -hmm. speaking to myself, too, like, about rest and about just, like, having space for joy and, like, you know, not being a workaholic as the only thing. With the notion of responsibility, you have to ask yourself, like, the question, responsibility to who? Mm -hmm. Like, responsibility to external, like, forces, mm -hmm. responsibility to self, because oftentimes they're not one in the same. One thing that my mom used to always say um, that I think kind of connects to this. She used to say like only in poor communities, especially poor black communities, can people show up, do work, not succeed in doing that work and blame it on the people. Sure. And my mom, you know, works in academia. Um, a lot of her work is focused on the youth space and growing up from her, mm -hmm. I always kind of viewed like my responsibility in work 
as one that needed to be rooted in doing the right thing no mm. matter what. Period. Doing the right thing and not just meeting the metrics of the grant. Yeah, it's like... How do I show up as a loving adult in a young person's life? I mean, I think you can't you can't be black and work for these, you know, in the nonprofit space, in the art space, in the education space, and not be highly critical of how these spaces run. Yeah. You know, like one of the things that like was a huge takeaway in my master's program, which was a nonprofit management, was like a real nonprofit should be working themselves out of business. It, because it, you should don't. No, because you, if you're working in a quote-unquote disadvantaged community, et cetera, et cetera, like, you should be trying to make sure that the folks, that you're helping folks have agency for their own outcomes. I mean, it's logic model one-on-one. Period. Like, what is Love the it. impact that you're trying to drive? Mm-hmm. Backwards design. So what activities are going to put in place? What are the resources we have? What are the intended outputs? And, you know... Just about every nonprofit has one, but they're never hitting those outcomes. Not quite. Because if they hit them they and they do it they with fidelity, mm-hmm. then they work themselves out of business. But no one wants, there's lots of money in nonprofit work. Um, and that's been part of one of my biggest frustrations mm-hmm. um, when I was in that space or working adjacent to that space, like having to. Like, really accept that most people weren't in it to truly do the work. Mm-hmm. I made a creative decision of, like, am I going to do nonprofits or work in higher education? Mm-hmm. They are both rooted in white supremacy. Yeah. They're both toxic spaces. But when I looked at nonprofits, I was like, it's going to be really hard in the nonprofit space if you are doing the right thing and you're really trying to um, create an organization that puts power into the people and agency mm-hmm. into the people you don't get grants. Yeah, power like <laughs> doing the right thing does not does not sound good on a grant and no application. Shade, but you in want high... the deficit based narrative yep. of like all Truth the things it. are wrong, yep. all the things that people can't do for themselves. And so when you when you achieve that, like that's not attractive. That's but not in higher ed in higher ed, if you want to do good work, you have to kind of do the wrong thing. You have to deceive the university, mm-hmm. and I don't feel guilty doing that. You shouldn't because the university is rooted in the same bullshit. Yeah. And so the university is different because there are resources there that we need to just be reallocating. I've also learned from this this journey that we're talking about that like I can be involved in spaces like Six Pick and not run it. Yeah. I think that's a very, like, one very, like, masculine way of thinking, like, toxic masculine way of thinking. Yeah, like, I've got to be the ego. Yeah. I have found so much joy at Six Pick being in the background. Like, I love just talking to a youth about, like, what kind of book would you, like, really want to read? And Yaya being, like... I want to read a book about um, Octavia Butler because everybody keeps talking about Octavia Butler. And then me just being able to contact someone like you or some mm-hmm. white woman at University of and say, can you donate $15 so I can buy an Octavia Butler book? Yeah. Like, I actually like to do that. And that's impactful. Yeah, I can just be doing academic stuff. Yeah. And I've, I, I think I've learned, I feel like that was a very valuable lesson for me. And I think I couldn't have learned that without working um, with black youth. Like Six Pick is... Um, <laughs> We're doing some of our after-school programming um, at the ICA. Mm-hmm. What they say. <laughs> <laughs> Several black youth that are going to be going there after school um, came to me the other day and, and just gave me some... They were like, yeah, today's our first day that we're going to ICA. And they, they, they said that they set up kind of like... It's supposed to feel kind of like six-pick. And I was like, okay, tell me how it is. And then one of the students was like, 
I'll send you a picture of what they set up. And I just love, like, because <laughs> I think, like, working with black youth will just allow you to stay yeah. on your, on your, on your P's and Q's. Yeah, and as adults working with them, we have to continue to cultivate space that allows them to continue to be that honest, that truthful. Direct, yep. Because that's going to serve them well. If the youth that I work with for the rest of my life could learn one thing that I didn't know, um, that I hope... I can, you know, instill it in, in them now just from me being myself at Six Pick mm -hmm. in other spaces is that you are academic, you are yeah. critical, you are brilliant without having to filter yourself, without having to code switch, without having mm -hmm. to question, um, before I call out this microaggression, let me figure out how I should say it. Like, yeah. you can tell someone, you just stepped on my toe. And you can say it in whatever tone it comes out of your mouth, and that should still be listened to. Yeah. And you shouldn't be labeled as angry or aggressive or whatever. You know, a poster child for these diversity and inclusion images yeah. that are still being put on pamphlets years okay. later. I don't know <laughs> if I feel... But even at that time, I had questions about that. But because yeah. I was there, far away from family, mm -hmm. um, on full scholarship, scholarship, you feel indebted to these yeah. institutions. And I think they really... Um, they strip a, the... the the agency from 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 quote unquote underserved or underprivileged yeah, or at risk. at risk youth like yeah. first of all I remember being labeled constantly as at risk youth because my mom was incarcerated and like when I look back I'm like my, I wasn't at risk because my mom was in jail if anything I came into these institutions knowing how to scam correctly knowing uh -huh. how to pull resources knowing how to be like why are we writing a seventy two page grant application for two dollars and twelve cents yeah. this this grant application should be a phone interview because this is no money if even that. Yeah, my mom's, my mom's like criminality. Cash app. Cash app, right? <laughs> love the space there, love the resources, but I see the ways that gatekeeping continues to thrive mm -hmm. in these very, you know, quote-unquote clever ways. But it's like, no, this is nothing but gatekeeping yeah. in the ways that they're doing stuff. And I think having, you know, being a quote-unquote at-risk youth and having to learn from my mother that you always need to balance your street smarts with your book smarts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are niggas on the street who have a PhD, honey, and never went to college. Yeah. Being rooted in black academic work with mm -hmm. youth in particular, because it allows me to not um, to not forget why I'm in academia. As I dream about like life in five years, ten years, I can even see myself like not living in the U.S. for I a while. literally was about to say, <laughs> you're giving me like black and abroad yeah, vibes. Like sabbatical. Like, like, yes. Whatever that looks like. Um, I studied abroad in Ghana and had the chance to sit down with a lot of ex-patriots um, and just kind of hear about their own journey to like chucking the deuces to the states and like moving abroad and... It's a very serious conversation right yeah, now. Yeah, very serious. It really and is. I revisited Ghana back in December 2019. I always tell people, like, Ghana felt like home for me. And, like, everyone I met felt like family. Um, wait, sorry. How? What's wrong with this? I don't know. I don't use those. I just poured out the bottle. You got the fancy contraption. Because this is Dr. Chaz's house. You know, I'm yes. trying to be... You know, the quarantine has taught me to just buy shit online. <laughs> but I don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> I definitely feel like in this moment of civil unrest and, you know, all the shit that's going on with racism yeah. in America, it is a very real time to consider leaving. Of course, yes, I'm sure racism does exist, and I did yeah. experience it in Japan, but I just felt way more authorized to just, like, be in space. Mm -hmm. Maybe because it's like people weren't speaking English, yeah. so I didn't give a fuck what they were saying, but yeah. I used to just... 
I would just get on the train and not know where I was going. I'd get on the train and be like, I'm just going to explore today. And I don't feel as authorized to do that yeah. in, in the States. I really don't. Like, my friend and I were talking about traveling um, to a space in the U.S. And, like, I just don't even have the desire because of how mm-hmm. toxic it is. And, like, one of the places I really want to go to the U.S. is I want to see Arizona, for example. Mm-hmm. But Arizona is very, very red. And I'm yeah. like... And I guess I just don't think about that when I'm abroad. Maybe it's yeah. naive, but I just feel like being black and going abroad, I just feel like we really need to experience it because it's, and it's also like, it's funny to say this, but it's also beautiful to see how blackness has been stolen in other cultures. Like yeah. Japan's oh, beat yeah, the bop, fashion. the fashion, the Harajuku girls, the yeah. bop culture, all of that is hip hop. Yeah. And when you, you know, get over the anger of them stealing from us, it's very innovative to see like, wait a minute, we influence all of this fucking yeah. shit. And so I think we're, at the, we're at the center of it all. And I feel like there were so many parts of my blackness in Japan that I discovered that were very untapped here yeah. because of the ways that I think you were, you mentioned placemaking earlier, the ways that I just feel like in my black body, I don't feel as um, safe to just explore no, in America. And I, I feel like that when we travel abroad. So there's just that's something to be said. Like, I just got back from... Like, a, like I want to see more of Texas, but... Yeah. I'm not going to Texas by I'm myself, not too. by myself and not with, like, a clear understanding of, like, my destination. <laughs> like, like, with an agenda that I sent to three close friends. Time no. Work. I feel like we talked yes. about a lot. You tell people, like, what you're working on right now. I know you talked about your new business and how they can get in touch with you. So, I'm working on continuing to grow North 24th Home. Um, I've been selling out each restock, which has been, like, oh, a yes. thing. Super grateful to all those who have supported. So, I'm just trying to find, like, the right rhythm and cadence of, like, managing that alongside working a full-time job. My full-time work, which is really focused on small business development and supporting... I'm um, coming to you soon to think about how I can do Black Matter into an LLC. So you'll be getting a call from me. Yes. Um, So working on that, I'm just like enjoying being in love and in partnership. Instagram at Toria Malia. This is a great show. I feel like you are a beacon of light in Richmond. And you just, you have always just, you know, done your thing and done your thing very well. And so I love hearing about you talk about life and love and travel because it's just, it's, it's, it's good to hear you talk about the things that like bring you joy. And again, as I said earlier, like that's been a theme of this um, episode. And like, I just love bringing on my black friends and being like, girl, just talk about what you're doing and like what is making you happy right now. Yeah. And I think when we talk about it, it, it invites others to know that like period you can be in that space that is so you can true. be committed to claiming your joy in whatever way like makes sense for you mm-hmm. and however you define that and this year while the world is burning i think we also burning. as black people <laughs> need to hold space for the fact that like but well, we we've always been over here while they have while they've been over there yeah. doing that shit We've been over here and we've had home making yeah. and we've had home as a metaphorical space. And I yeah. say we've had home as a way to create an alternative world, a better yeah. world where, where there's there's uninhibited beauty and there's mm-hmm. there's love and there's pleasure and there's intimacy and there's healthy community building. I there's think joy. Like, 
I just love the stories that we share when we really think about black love and black homes um, yeah. in this metaphorical, creative way. Thank you, Toria. This was great. I'll give you the sound that just makes me think about you. Just... Yeah. Toria Edmonds Howell, y'all. Dr. Chad. Thank you for listening, everybody.